A reading from Genesis chapter 32. Jacob, having tricked his brother and stolen his birthright, went into hiding for many years. Now, returning to his country for the first time since the betrayal, he prepares to face his brother, fearing the worst. May we find ourselves in this ancient story. In the course of the night, Jacob arose, took the entire caravan, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. After Jacob had crossed with his family and all his possessions, he returned to the camp, and he was completely alone. And there, someone wrestled with Jacob until the first light of dawn. Seeing that Jacob could not be overpowered, the other struck Jacob at the socket of the hip, and the hip was dislocated as they wrestled. Then Jacob's contender said, Let me go, for day is breaking. Jacob answered, I will not let you go until you bless me. What is your name? the other asked. Jacob, he answered. The other said, your name will no longer be called Jacob or heel grabber, but Israel, wrestler of God, because you have wrestled with both God and mortals, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, now tell me your name, I beg you. The other said, why do you ask me my name? And blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, face of God, because I have seen God face to face, yet my life was spared. At sunrise, Jacob left Peniel, limping along from the injured hip. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God.
The epistle reading this week is from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapters 3 and 4. In prison and facing his own death, Paul shares his hard-won ministry wisdom with his beloved child. May Paul's wisdom fall fresh on our ears. You have followed closely my teaching and my conduct. You have observed my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, and my persecutions and sufferings, like what happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. Yet our God rescued me from all of them. In fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus can expect to be persecuted. But all the while, imposters and charlatans will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and deceiving themselves. You, for your part, must remain faithful to what you have learned and believed, because you know who your teachers were. Likewise, from your infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, the source of wisdom which through faith in Christ, faith in Christ Jesus, leads to salvation. All scripture is inspired of God and is useful for teaching, for reprimanding, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the people of God may be fully competent and equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of the appearance and reign of Christ, I charge you to preach the word, to be prepared in season and out of season, and to correct, reprimand, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time is coming when people won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their fickle ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, Perform your work as an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. This is one of our sacred teachings. Thanks be to God. Earlier this year, in March, Claire and I began leading a Sunday school class on one of the most contentious topics in our tradition, the Bible. <laughs> We'd sort of inherited the class from Steve Jolly, though they'd talked through a variety of things over time, not just the Bible. And we made a point <clears throat> to put to the group this question every so often. What do, you all need, what do you all need this space to be? What do you want to be talking about? Now, I've been working with teenagers for the past several years, so imagine my surprise when they kept answering, we want to talk about the Bible. But this wasn't a request to talk about the Bible in a traditional Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus kind of way. The questions weren't, how do I apply these eternal truths to my life, but what the heck am I supposed to do with this thing? We inherited a way of reading that frankly, doesn't seem to be doing us much good, and now we're not sure where to go. So since that was our starting point, Claire dubbed the class, How Do You Solve a Problem Like the Bible? 
It's a question that I suspect isn't isolated to just the incredible group of people that meets us around the table before worship each week, but seems to be a commonly held tension in the body of progressive Christianity. We hear Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream preached from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. But at the same time, we see Leviticus 18.22, homosexuals are an abomination scrawled across picket signs on television. So what now? Do we revere it? Do we throw it out? Do we chop it to bits, keeping the best parts and tossing the rest into the fire? It's not just a catchy title, it's a sincere question. How do you solve a problem like the Bible? Two weeks ago, I suggested that out of the 4,200 religions recognized across the globe, there are actually only two. There is religion that roots us more firmly in our ego and in our fear and religion that wakes us up to the reality of love. And this week I want to go a step farther in suggesting that these two religions have two distinct ways of engaging scripture, whether it's a Bible, a sutra, or a Quran. Scripture can be used as either an instrument of the ego or as a place to meet God. First, let's consider the Bible as it's wielded by this first religion. Let's call it ego religion. Just to be clear, though, let me warn us to be careful not to set up an us versus them duality, because we are all of us capable of a posture towards that religion. We have all practiced it at some point, so let us balance our observation with compassion. Where sacred texts are concerned, this tradition, in this tradition, we have too often used scriptures as a tool to justify the urges of our own egos. In our first reading this morning, or our second reading this morning, Paul writes to his disciple and the beloved child, Timothy, about the nature and the purpose of Scripture. And as he's writing, he clarifies the reason this is even worth talking about. The time is coming, Paul writes, when people won't tolerate sound teaching that carries a challenge. They will collect teachers who say what they want to hear. They will create an echo chamber around them that only serves to reinforce their own ideas. They will turn their back to challenging truth and choose myths instead, false narratives about the world. Now he wrote, the time is coming, because I'm sure he'd seen the time come. He knew the time was now, and he knew the time would always be coming, because this is a human story that has been playing out since the first human developed a sense of self. We identify so fully with our own flesh, with the whims of the mind, that religion and religious scriptures are reduced to a handy tool for justifying our own self-centered practices. We use religious language to baptize our own racism, homophobia, tribalism, and worst of all, to avoid learning that art of love for which the tradition exists in the first place. The salvation that Moses, Isaiah, or Jesus urged us on towards is replaced instead by a cheap, and self-justifying habit. I joined a couple of friends last week to begin studying a book called Stamped from the Beginning, a history of racist ideas 
in America. It tells, or rather retells, America's story with an eye towards the development and fruit of racist ideas present from our very inception. And the first leg of this history revolves largely around, you'll never believe it, the Christian scriptures, as they've been co-opted to justify slavery. Let me share a few examples. George Best was an English travel writer, and he popularized what became known as the curse theory. It unfolds as follows. In Genesis, Noah orders his white and angel-like sons to abstain from sex with their wives on the ark, and then tells them the first child born after the flood would inherit the earth. Now when the evil, tyrannical, hypersexual Ham does have sex on the ark, God wills that Ham's descendants will be so black and loathsome that it might remain a spectacle of disobedience to all the world. There were similar arguments about the mark of Cain earlier in Genesis. And others, like William Perkins, pointed to Paul's letters to mask the exploitative master-servant or master-slave relationship as that of a loving family. Or that whites and blacks had equal souls but unequal bodies, leaving us free to save the former and enslave the latter. Each of these uses of scripture has little to do with the scriptures themselves and everything to do with our desire to be superior to someone who looks different, to be able to dehumanize an other. These texts were meant to wake us up, but each of us is capable of giving them over to that part of ourselves concerned with keeping us asleep, therefore making them a perfect place to hide from God or a weapon to defend our stronghold. We have got to maintain an awareness of this tendency within ourselves and within the world around us, aware of our drive to take the thing meant to point us towards God and craft it into an idol of our own likeness. We have too often used scripture as a tool to justify the urges of our own egos. However tempting it may be to throw them out at this point, to say that they've done more harm than good, this would be to act to our own detriment. We would cut ourselves off from the opportunity to, like Jacob, hold tight and wrestle with them until they yield to us a blessing of new life. It's true, Scripture can be used as a bludgeoning weapon of the ego, but in that second religion, Scripture can be a meeting ground between humanity and the divine. Since you were a child, Paul writes to Timothy, you have known the Scriptures that have helped you to be wise. You've known the scriptures that, read through the lens of your faith in the Holy Spirit of love, lead you to salvation from the flesh. Every scripture is inspired by God, permeated with God's breath of life. Every scripture is useful for revealing and correcting mistakes in our living and for helping us to develop character. Every scripture is useful for equipping God's children to do all manner of good works. Your work then, Using this tool is so important, Timothy, he writes. Preach these stories with all patience and instruction. Use these stories as a map to direct people away from themselves and towards God. 
Scripture is only as good as its ability to move us towards God. It's only as good as it serves to awaken us to our false selves and guide us on that journey of death so that Christ may live through us. Scripture is a place where we can meet God so this work can take place. How, then, do we meet God in these ancient and problematic texts? An appreciation of what Scripture is and is not is a helpful place to start. Scripture is not a list of instructions. It's not a divinely dictated manual or stories of heroes to be emulated. To flatten Scripture like that would be to cut it off from its power. Scripture is, however, a collection of experiences of and reflections on God from a particular contextual Middle Eastern tribe assembled over centuries. And they're a lot like us. They're trying to figure out what to do in response to this life they find themselves in, sometimes bearing incredible fruit and sometimes getting it horrifically wrong. This collection is embarrassingly contextual, using language and stories that often require a lot of grace for their blind spots. The experiences often contradict one another. They mean different things by the word God. Their great wisdom is interweaved with great violence, and so meeting God there is never a matter of uncritically swallowing the whole thing, but conversing with it, dancing with it, wrestling it when necessary. When we come to Scripture, we find ourselves in conversation with others in the hope that through their stories, we might see our stories more clearly. We hope that in their experience of God, we might more finely tune our hearts to recognize God in our own experience. So use your imagination when you read Scripture. Pay attention to your feelings as well as your thoughts. Where are we in this story? What feels familiar? What feels wrong? How is our experience of God different or similar? These are questions that help turn our relationship with the Bible into one of mutual illumination, formation into Christ-likeness. After all, we are not, as some would lead us to believe, engaging in an objective history of God's actions, but a collection of personalities. The question is never, why did God do X, Y, or Z? But why does the author say that God did X, Y, or Z? Why is it important enough for them to write down or for others to pass it on? Engage it and dance with it on that level. And on those grounds, we might encounter the Spirit of God. Now, let me say, if you've been too deeply wounded by Scripture to feel comfortable acknowledging that as a possibility, that's okay. You're not alone. Feel free to let it go, to find God elsewhere for a while. That's okay. God is far bigger than our Bible, bigger than our tradition, for that matter. But for the rest of us, for those lucky enough not to face this level of trauma or those who have been through the long process of working through it, let us consider this. The point of Scripture is to water our souls so that they might produce the fruit of love. Used properly, Scripture can be a meeting ground between humanity and the divine. 
Although meeting place might not be quite the most honest language for any who have ever had the experience of meeting God. The truth is, scripture is often not just a meeting place, but more of a wrestling ring. Jacob's encounter with a mysterious being on the bank of the Jabbok River has created a pattern, a narrative, into which many of us can read our own experience with God. Here's the frame of this picture. Having stolen his brother's birthright, Jacob lived in exile for many years before feeling it was time to return to his own country. This return, however, would certainly mean coming face to face with his brother, who the last time they'd seen each other had been snarling threats of murder. He soon learned that not only was his brother coming out to meet him, but that he was bringing with him a battalion of 400 men. So in an attempt to appease his brother and protect himself, Jacob sent gifts ahead and divided up his own property and divided up his family, sending them into the land in different parties in the hope that if one was discovered, another might survive. And after sending away the last caravan, the sun setting beneath the horizon, Jacob found himself alone on the bank of the river, alone with his fear alone with himself. And there is something about these solitary places, these states, discovered later by Elijah in the cave or Jesus in the desert. There's something about being left alone with yourself when the noise and the distractions go away and to your horror you find that you are left to see the shape of your own ego up against the presence of God, the vastness of being. And that is when the wrestling match begins. Lise Pascal once wrote, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Our suffering stems from our unwillingness to wrestle with ourselves, to wrestle with God. But this was not so with Jesus, with Elijah, or with Jacob. Driven by a desperation and annoying realization that there's simply no other way out. They saw God and would not let go. It hurt, but he would not let go. It was exhausting, but Jacob would not let go. And by morning light, Jacob had died. And a new creation, Israel, lived in his place. Walking into the morning with a limp. A limp and a blessing, a death, and a resurrection. These are the wages of an encounter with the living God. Anything less is a cheap counterfeit. Many of us were brought up with the image of God as too weak or easily offended to fight. Debbie Thomas writes, I thought of God as terribly fragile. Easily offended, easily upset, easily put off. My job as a good Christian girl was to obey the rules and keep the delicate divinity happy at all costs. One false turn, one impertinent question, one sullied bit of doctrine, and God would shatter like a fine china teacup knocked off of a table. This is the God of ego religion, but not the God of perennial truth. You can recognize the living God because it is as strong as eternity and can handle any question, 
any pushback, or our downright anger. This is no less true of our relationship with Scripture. Don't hold back, because it is a ring in which we wrestle for that blessing. It's the riverbank on which we earn our new name, though we may never walk the same way again. It's unclear who wins that wrestling match. If done honestly enough, with enough courage, in a way, we don't survive the encounter. No longer Jacob, but Israel. No longer I, but Christ. The ego's hip is dislocated and our hearts beat with a limp. But don't fear the fight. Because that which is eternal in us can never be harmed, no matter how fierce the struggle because we leave the fight with a life and a peace, with a blessing that we never dreamed possible. Scripture is often not just a meeting place, but a wrestling ring. So how do you solve a problem like the Bible? What are we to do with this collection of wonderful, terrible, liberating, oppressive stories, poems, sermons, and letters that we have inherited from a tradition as old as imagination. Emmy Kegler, a queer Lutheran pastor who has struggled with this question in a powerful way, comes to this conclusion. It's my responsibility, and I believe the church's, to bear these stories, to witness to them, and face unafraid the truth of what has been done in the supposed name of God. We are to honor these stories. To fear and silence them is to ignore the presence of God, who meets us not just in glory, but also in suffering. Who gives a blessing not from the rendered heavens, but whispered in a new name, pinned in the dark before dawn. Scripture can be used either as an instrument of the ego or as a place to meet God. We may engage it as an echo chamber to safely hold company with ourselves, distracted from any real spiritual work, or as a meeting place with the divine. It may be wielded as a weapon to bludgeon our enemies or as a wrestling ring in which we might go to the mat with God to hold fast until we are at once injured and blessed destroyed, and brought to life. So people of God, may we not squander this precious gift our ancestors have handed us. May we hold fast again and again until we are blessed with awakening.